Welcome to the Legacy of Our African-American Lives podcast, where our stories become oral histories created to uplift, empower, and embrace the next generation. Hi, my name is Tangela Irby, and I am a G's Ben Legacy author, educator, and I am your host. I say this every week, but I am so excited about today's special guest. When you think about storytelling and you think about the African-American experience, you cannot have those thoughts without thinking about going to church. Every Sunday, one of the highlights is the storytelling that you are bound to have coming from the pulpit. I think preachers are spectacular in their craft and grabbing you and making you come along with them as they tell you the stories through the Bible and then make connections to what we are living and going through today. And today's guest, Reverend Charlie Stallworth, is one of the best to do it. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. You make it such a generous introduction. I'm honored that you would have me on with you. I've had the privilege of sitting in the pews at East End. I enjoy the people. I enjoy the ministry. It just takes you back to a certain place and time. And so again, I am so grateful to have you here. And I know that your East End family is going to be listening when this episode airs. I want you to tell me a little bit about your story. If your grandkids were to turn on this podcast 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what is it about your legacy that you want them to know? I think the ideal of legacy, if I can leave one, is that God's grace is sufficient. And I have only arrived at whatever post uh, that I've been able to enjoy in life by the grace of God. My gifts and talents are limited, but yet God has smiled on me in many ways. Beyond my expectation, this morning I was just thanking God. You know, Oprah says this thing about some of the things that we take for granted now are some of the things we only dream for years ago. And so this morning, I was just thanking God for being able to wake up and look in the ceiling and not see the and not see the sky. <laughs> you know, Growing up poor in Alabama, you can often wake up in the morning and look into the ceiling and see the sky. So I think just being what God can do with a life, even when we are not faithful, but God is still faithful. So the faithfulness of God, the grace of God would be the themes of my life. I was born in Beatrice, Alabama, 30, 40 minutes from G's Benz, <laughs> in Morrow County, state of Alabama, a little small town, maybe four or 500 people at that time, because at that time it was a metropolis, right? <laughs> at least in my mind. But I went to elementary school and high school there. There were probably 75 students in my high school class, which was a very small class. And I did not rank in the top 20, 40, or 50, but yet I survived one of seven children. My parents, both mother and father, quit school in the 10th grade because in that day and time, my mother had to work to help her mother. My father quit school in the 10th grade and then some strange way went into the military. So how he did, I probably should not share, don't know exactly how the rules are, but he's in the land beyond now. So it doesn't make, I guess, that much too much of a difference. But was the little kid that probably no one thought would do much, that would not succeed, would not go very far. A mama's baby. I'd say I'm Gus's baby boy. And cried every day for probably the first 
four grades of elementary school because I didn't want to go to school. And I remember when I told my mother I was going to college, she was like, college? You were going to school, now you school. So somewhere after I entered the ministry, which I entered the ministry at age 16, but somewhere the desire for knowledge changed. And I four degrees later, I just have a thirst for it now that I did not have. So just coming out of that small Southern environment, my father was on the tail end of the civil rights movement. I never heard my father say yes, sir, to a white man his entire life. Could have had something to do with he had a 22 pistol in his back pocket. I'm not sure. But he never said yes, sir, to a white man. He was always clean every day after he retired from the military. So how did you end up from Alabama? to Connecticut. The long journey is not a straight shot on interstate, but when I went to an undergrad school, a small Baptist school in Alabama and Selma, Selma University, across that Edmunds Pettus Bridge every day. So I went to small Baptist school and sitting in class one day, I just looked on the wall and there were those little tear-off forms that you could send in. This back in the paper days where you could just tear the form off and send it in. Uh, and they would send you a catalog of the school. And so it was one on the wall from Vanderbilt. And I just tore it off and filled it out and sent it in. Ended up at Vanderbilt in seminary and went to Iowa. Out of seminary, I went to Iowa. Yeah, I know Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa. I must have, as I said, I was not in the top 10 in my high school class because I must have flunked geography because I didn't even know Des Moines, Iowa existed. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I told my faculty advisor that I was going to apply for a church, I said in Des Moines, he said, wait a minute, first of all, get the name right. It is not Des Moines, it's Des Moines, let's get it right. So I was there at the church for 10 years, left there and went back to Alabama and spent um, eight years, I believe. And a friend of mine called me one day. I remember I was in Selma, Alabama when he called me. And he said, Stalbert, there's a church in Connecticut, home folk, probably from where you're from. And they're looking for a pastor. And I came up a couple of times and preached and was surprised, pleasantly surprised to see people from Alabama. I think someone walked up to me and said, I'm from Camden. And I went, you are from Camden? The Camden I know? Because in my hometown, Beatrice is in Monroe County, which is dry county. <laughs> and Camden is in Wilcox, which is wet county. And for those who listen who may not know, dry county, you can't sell alcohol. Wet county, you can. So people in our county always went to Wilcox County to buy their alcohol because they could buy it legally there. And so when I came here as a candidate to preach and met people from Camden and G's Bins and all those places, I went, wow, this is the South up North. A friend of mine's pastor who was helping East End in their search for pastor was the one who told me about East End. This is the way I arrived here 17 years ago. It does not feel like it has been that long, but 17 years ago. I think when you move up to this to the Northeast, that the New York vibe is in the air. So, you know, you come up with the Southern hospitality, you go in the grocery store, you speak to everybody, you notice nobody's speaking back. <laughs> and so you pull back, right? But then you discover there are pockets where people just as Southern and has just as much Southern hospitality. And in some place, 
I think you find your own balance. And I think I found my own balance in just being true to who I am and living out my life. Well, I walk around mean all day. <laughs> so I found myself in that Southern flair because I'm really an introvert. So I have to sometimes work hard to get it out. And the impact I really sense is when I go back home to visit and you run in a store and you just want to go in the store and get, I don't know, a bottle of water or whatever and come back out. And you walk in the store and you get your bottle of water and you put it on the counter. And instead of the person saying $2, $3, they're like, so how are you feeling today? You look, you got a great smile. <laughs> so you go, okay, I'm back in Alabama. You just can't walk in the store and buy something to walk out. <laughs> so that's like being energized again with that southern hospitality. I've been in ministry. I've been preaching for 42 years. That is just, that blows my mind. <laughs> but maybe 30 years ago, someone wrote a book. I don't even remember the name of the book, but the emphasis of the book I do remember that suggested that we should start forming small groups and pockets because people would not be able to always come to church. And everyone read that book and went, ah, that doesn't make sense. We always be able to go to church. Why would you go to church? Yeah. And some churches adopted what they call a cell group idea of being connected with smaller groups. But it has been a shock to the church because part of us, we survive on the preaching, the singing, the teaching. But part of us is also the fellowship. I mean, that's the reason we dress up and go to church. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a style of freedom, you know? <laughs> so we also miss that part of the fellowship. And so when COVID came about and really a shutdown and given the African-American community where maybe technology is not as present, it has been kind of a shock. We were fortunate at the East End Church because we had already decided to go online even before we heard the pandemic was coming. And so when the governor said, hey, shut down, we were like, okay, flip the switch, let's go live. But it's been a slow uh, coming back. I think if you would line up grocery stores, dry cleaners, even movie theaters, uh, people have gone back to those places first, more so than they have gone back to the church because how can you, it's a hard challenge. I can listen to the sermon and eat my toast at the same time. <laughs> you know, so I'm having my coffee and communion and I still have all my slippers. So it's kind of hard to fight that. I think there will be a return that's going to be gradual. I remember growing up and hearing about the big revivals where the young people would have to seek God. And I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So I'm asking if you could help me. The morning bench. Yes, where you would go to weep and to mourn sorrowful for your sins. You know, that you mentioned revival. The fourth Sunday of September every year was homecoming and revival at my home church, Antioch Baptist Church. These days were so important that I still remember first Sunday in August was morning star. Second Sunday was shallow. I think third Sunday may have been Sylvester, one of the other churches, but that was their Sunday every year. Everybody opened their trunks and their doors and they put our tables. We served food and we came back every night for the week for church. And you're right. You went to the mourner's bench and you sat there until you got religion. 
Okay. And hopefully by Friday night, you got some religion. <laughs> so if you feel like you got some religion by Friday night, then you join the church. But that, that was the morning's bench, that very front bench. And take now, a lot of churches, people are a little in the South. They are not eager to sit on that morning's bench, though it's no longer called the morning's bench. That psychic says, if I sit here, everybody's going to think I must have been in seats. <laughs> so I'll take the second row. Yeah. There are some stories I've heard of people saying you had to sit there until they just gathered around you because the preacher had preached that sermon about going across hell on a spider's web. <laughs> they would come and lay hands on you and pray for you. They'll say, catch hold, let it go, hold on, let it go. And at the end of the night, you didn't know whether you wanted to hold on, let go, catch up, run, or slow down because you had heard so many phrases coming into your ear. But they would pray you through until you either got religion or maybe in a few cases you made up a moment of getting religion. Two things, church and politics. And so <laughs> I am a politician. The idea of separation of church and, and state was really to protect the state against the Church of England so that the church would not control the state. It is not that people want to keep the state out the church or church out the state. That was not the ideal. And it became kind of point of contention. But I say to people, when my ancestors were stolen from their land and put on slave ships, you involved me in politics because you brought me over to a place you had a constitution. You brought me over to a place that had this idea called voting. So you involved me in politics. I didn't have the option to opt out. That was not a block I could check. And so I come in, I fight for my rights. I have two options to fight for my rights. I can use violence or I can use the law, which means I need to use politics. And so for minorities, African-Americans and others, there's no separation of existence in this physical world and my spiritual identity. And so you cannot make me a slave, but tell me, but when you die, you're going to heaven and be free but I'm a slave right now. So I have to do whatever is necessary to engage in the liberation and the freedom for my people. So I'm involved in politics because I don't see a dividing line between one and the other. And being a politician, often I hear people say, I don't get involved in politics. Ah, oh, yes, you do. If you live in a home, politics determine the codes that will be used to build that home. If you drink water, that has been regulated by politics. If you got a car, it has been regulated by politics. If you drive on a highway, it has been regulated by politics. If you have a job, it's been regulated by politics. Very few places and very few moments other than, no, breathing has been regulated by politics too because they control the environment. <laughs> so there's not an area of life that does not involve politics. And so I don't see a difference between uh, my faith and my politics. I don't see a dividing line. I tell people who say they just want to let whatever happen today and then they want to die and go to the other side and drink milk and honey. I say, well, I, I don't want the milk because I'm lactose intolerant and I don't need the honey, okay? I need a paycheck and some things while I'm here and some freedom and some opportunity right here. Not when I die, but right here. <laughs>
I think God's going to take care of us when we die, right? We do the right thing while we're here. God got it. You talked about your church being online. So where can they find yeah. you? East End Tabernacle Baptist Church, uh, Bridgeport, 548 Central Avenue. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. Our services each Sunday, 930 Eastern Time. And my last question to you is, why is it important for us to continue to support the Black church? For a long time, the Black church has supported us. When you look at the historical Black colleges, when you look at some of the feeding programs, when you look at the place where we could go to protest, it was the Black church. We owned the church before we owned banks. We owned the church before we owned corporations. It has been the backbone of what has gotten us to the point where we are now. And if you're a Black person, chances are whether it's been a funeral or it's been a worship service, you've been through a Black church. <laughs> well, Reverend Stallworth, I want to say thank you so much for giving your time to us on the podcast this afternoon. This was a tip of the iceberg in terms of the questions that I have for you. So I'm going to extend another opportunity to come back and to talk to us a little bit more. Awesome. I will look forward to it. On another note, for my blue and white family that may be listening, I enjoy talking to my frat. Again, <laughs> thank you so much.